Life's Third Act is a podcast dedicated to helping you get the most out of your retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, attorney CPA Joe Cordell features guests each week to discuss prominent topics for those over 55. Here's attorney CPA Joe Cordell. Welcome to another episode of Life's Third Act. Uh, We're going to continue the series that we started last week. We're answering the question, what could possibly go wrong in estate planning? So we wanted to identify the most notorious examples or the the most notorious items uh, that we would list as things that all too commonly go wrong in estate planning. And the good news is, as to each of these, they're preventable. And we have our wonderful guest who is going to lead us through that, Nina Windsor, who's uh, you all know. You've seen her on the show regularly. She's with Tucker Allen. So uh, she'll be leading this discussion. So here's a quick message from Tucker Allen. Strong roots are essential for a healthy tree, especially your family tree. That's why you work hard to take care of your family every day. At Tucker Allen, we know that taking care of your family means planning for the future. Our team provides personalized estate planning to help you protect your family, your legacy, and your future. From wills and trusts to long-term care and estate planning, count on Tucker Allen. Personalized estate planning made simple. Okay, Nina Windsor, we're back. Hello. So welcome back. And this is an interesting topic, right? It is. Uh, this probably is uh, much of what you spend your time doing is correcting issues like this, maybe, from other counsel? Absolutely. We think of ourselves as disaster preparedness experts. So I love that. Yeah. And these, incidentally, are not necessarily errors by other counsel, I should say, in fairness. I mean, some of these things are maybe the, the attorneys could have called their clients' attention to it. But, you know, sometimes, you know, clients, if they don't understand what the rules are, they will sometimes make decisions that come back to haunt them or more likely will come back to haunt their beneficiaries. And sometimes, I guess, you know, as we talked about last time, the information wasn't wasn't communicated honestly to the attorney. Yeah, yeah, that's you right. Know? Yeah, and that, that did make, you know, we talked about that last week. Go back to episode number one. So here we are, episode number two. Nina, what is the next item of our list of things that can go wrong in estate planning? So a lot of times when you're making a plan, you want to have a plan A. And so when we're talking to clients about naming their fiduciaries, whether that's their trustees or their powers of attorney who are going to be successors uh, to them or to their spouse, they think, well, after my spouse, I only need one other person because they have this ideal candidate. We give them this laundry list of things of that ideal candidate. And they Mm -hmm. said, well, of course I have that person. Here they are and here's their name let's move on. The issue is that we actually recommend that there are at least two to three successors for every position. And they can be the same people, but it's really important to have more than one person or entity named on your documents. A lot of times, you know, we recommend that at least every five years you have someone take a look at your estate plan. And at that point, you can kind of reassess 
who you have named. But the issue is that in the meantime, the reason you have an estate plan is that the unexpected can happen. So something could happen to your successor. In fact, you may have named a successor that is so close to you, something may happen to you and your successor at the same Same time. time. Sure. Um, And no one wants to think about that, but... But it's yeah, I mean, it's over a period of decades, it's not only possible in some cases, depending on ages and demographics and stuff, it may be probable that there will be a change. And sometimes these changes are not necessarily the death of the person. The person could become disabled. Um, they could simply get tired of doing it. And, and they have the right to resign, incidentally. You can't conscript them to this role. <laughs> yeah, they're not and, obligated. And and I've and how many times have we seen it where you have one child, for example, who often the oldest child may be appointed and the oldest child has just dealt with a lot of conflict and and resentment maybe from some of the other siblings. Um, you know, I wish all families were harmonious, but we know it particularly in matters like this. It can bring out conflict that maybe didn't even exist too much before. But anyway, the person can just throw up their hands and say, look, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. You know, this isn't a paid position, and I've Mm -hmm. put up with too much. I'm done. I mean, I've seen more than once somebody just say, I'm not doing it anymore. Why do you guys do it? Mm -hmm. And then you have, if you don't have a provision for appointment or if you haven't named a second person, then guess where it ends up? Court appointment. It it ends up in court in some way. I have to ask you, Nino, what's the longest list of successors you've seen? I think seven. Really? Seven. Yeah. Um, But it was was an extremely large family. And, you know, once I gave them the logic behind naming multiples, they were like, well, if we're going to do it that way, let's just keep going. You sold them on so that. I yeah. really did. I was almost too effective. But they uh, they had people, that, the nice thing about this list was that they had people who were their contemporaries, people that they knew were already good with paperwork, good with business, good with numbers, right. financially established so that there wasn't a concern about them having access to these funds. And then the people who were further down on the list would probably only be in that position if the people above them had passed away or were too old to handle it. And at that point, the younger people on the list would have gotten older. So matured, hopefully. Exactly, exactly. And now the reason you still want to revisit that plan is those no- younger people that you have named, you get an opportunity to revisit what, how are they doing? How are they doing with their finances? What kind of career have they gone into that they may have a different acumen than the other people on the list? And you may keep the same people, but you may want to switch them around. However, that just doesn't mean that you wait until that point to put people on the list because you don't want to bank on the fact that you're going to be as responsible either to come back in to your attorney's office and revisit your plan and add more people. And you want a document that can live as long as what you've come up with will provide for. And if you name somebody who you know may be unable to serve in five years from now, then you're guaranteed to have to get new documents or at least an amendment in that period of time. Yeah, I mean, it's tough to to select somebody and be confident that that person will be willing and able to do it for potentially decades. And and those those of you who will be doing trusts, and now most states permit what's called dynasty trusts. So that means that people, it's really cool that people can plan for a trust that stays in place 
for their children and and then reserve some of it for their grandchildren. Yes. And so a, a trust can be in effect for a long time. It's one of its cool features, and you can provide protection to your descendants that way. And you don't have to be real rich to do this. You have to have a little bit of money, but a little bit of money goes a long way when you have compounding interest over a period of time. Now, in that type of situation, is it you know most often when you would use a financial institution to act in that role? Well, you could. Um, do you sometimes appoint uh, instead... People will say, gee, I don't know who it should be, so I'm going to choose somebody who would do an appointment later. That is a great question. Yes, you can appoint someone who is either, you know, a trust protector or uh, somebody who is able to have um, not only a power of appointment for assets, but then you also have that power to appoint another uh, replacement fiduciary or just allowing uh, even your spouse to be somebody who can appoint additional successors. So maybe the trust is irrevocable as to the provisions of distribution, but it has the ability to amend it to add additional people after the first spouse has passed. Because that's when you start looking at the family, looking how they're acting during that period of time and deciding who do you really want to be handling the family's legacy going forward. Yeah, yeah. And that's a fragile time where there's a second wife involved, perhaps, and children who may be resentful, or maybe it's just a complicated blended family situation right, right. where, where you know, relationships are more fragile after the person really that united, that everyone had in common is gone, has passed away, presumably you, then it's really important to have somebody who can play this role effectively. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so then how would you sum up this point? So I'd say it's basically two prongs. One, making sure that you have enough people named that uh, you aren't putting all of your eggs in that one basket of that perfect fiduciary that you've picked. And then also making sure that the people that you have named span a, a decent amount of an age range unless they are all your children. Very good. All right. Uh, let's move to the next item of our list of things that can and often do go wrong in estate planning. What's the next item? So the next item really talks about wills and things that don't involve trusts. We know that not all of our clients are ready to commit to an individual or joint revocable trust for purposes of their estate plan. However, um, sometimes they come in with a lot of misconceptions about what they're going to do with their accounts because they're not engaging in that funding process where you will leave the office after you've signed your trust and start putting beneficiary designations on your account so that if something happens to you, it goes to your trust. So when you're crafting that will, a lot of people have all of these provisions of things that they want as specific gifts to people, for example. And then the residue or the remaining balance would go equally among their children. The issue with this is that a lot of times your will is actually your backup plan because anything that goes through a will is in probate. So if you're all right with everybody having to go through probate and sort everything out and you're like, no, I want to be as specific as possible in my will. I know it's going to go through the probate process. I know there's going to be a hold on everything for six months to notice to creditors. And I don't care. That's their problem. They're getting a gift from me. That's fine, but everybody needs to be on, on the same page right. about that. If the primary plan is to leave things through 
your bank accounts and whatnot, then you don't want to put specific provisions in your will, um, you know, that are talking about skimming things off the top because a lot of things may not go through your will. And then the things that get paid first are those specific provisions. So if you say, well, you know, to my friend Judy, I would like to leave $10,000. Well, if only eight to $9,000 worth of assets go through your will, guess what? Judy's getting everything. And then everything else is, you know, somehow uh, going through beneficiary designations. And I'm going to take a step back a little bit from where we started, because what you explained makes sense. I know it makes sense to probably... 80%, 70% of you. But I'm concerned about a minority that I think may not fully get this. And that's that some people, in order to avoid probate as a plan, they figure, well, gee, what I'll do is just put somebody's name down as a beneficiary on a on my, my securities accounts, on my bank accounts, on on my car, on, on, on real estate. I mean, so there is this thing called a beneficiary clause. It's called different things in different states that you can do that. Incidentally, it's really important you understand the difference between that and a co-owner. Yes, <laughs> we'll, so we'll get to that. You're going to yeah. get to that. Okay. So if you do that as a strategy, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't have some sort of estate planning like a, a will or a trust. You know, we don't advocate that, and I really want you to talk about some of the additional reasons that that's a bad idea. But some people say, you know, it's a, I've heard the phrase used, it's a poor man's estate planning. So what they think is, gee, I have my, my assets in these three accounts, whatever accounts they are, and I'm just going to name my wife as a beneficiary or on death clause is is the language might appear. So they go on their way thinking, gee, all my estate planning's done. But it's really not, and it leaves unaddressed assets and other issues in your life that exist for all of us, and they're going to be left to a probate without any sort of will. So it's you know, it still ends up in probate court, but if you can if you can imagine something worse than probate which is accompanies a will is when you go through a probate process without a will i guess you call it what do you call it administration intestate yeah intestate succession but yeah. so talk about what's wrong with that plan for people who think well gee i'll just add these names on accounts and i'm done it's as a payable on death beneficiary yeah, yeah. as yes. as as, mm-hmm. as an estate planning you know strategy so it's helpful and unless your will conflicts those beneficiary designations, um, then it's not really necessarily going according to your intent. Um, it does, in a lot of instances, avoid probate. Uh, for example, you can put a name on your car so that you're not sitting with you know, just a car going through probate. Um, the things that are kind of left over also have to do with your belongings. So if you have just one thing that doesn't have a beneficiary designation on it, and that has to go through probate, it seems disproportionate that you're paying attorney's fees to have something go through through probate. But guess what? You now have to also inventory every single thing. Your your loved ones have to inventory every single thing in your house and provide a value for that. They can't just donate it. They have to, you know, hold on to things, value them, sell them, distribute them to your heirs, depending on, you know, what, what the case may be, who the beneficiaries are and what kind of creditors you have. So it's kind of a mess. So when I, you know, talk to clients, I'm saying, 
Look, be careful here because there's still a possibility if you miss anything, you're going to end up with somebody counting how many forks you have in your house and having to report that to the probate court. And that usually anybody who has gone through that process with a family member where they have had to go through and value what the person has left behind, it's not only time-consuming, but it's also very emotionally draining. Sure, Um, yeah. monetizing yeah. what's been left by a person who's passed away. And it, it is one of the most depressing things I can actually think of. I have a question about the POD. So say you have a checking or savings. Say what POD is. Payable on debt. Okay, go ahead. Right. Okay. So say you name your child, your adult child, okay, and that child goes in after your death. Does the bank need to see something other than a death certificate? Do they say, okay, we need a will or or whatever to prove, or is it in effect? If it's a POD, um, a payable on death, and you've learned the lingo now, so you've I that. have. Yeah. Um, so if you have a POD to a child, then they can usually just provide the death certificate to the bank, and then the bank would um, liquidate the account and pay it out to that okay. child. Okay. Okay. Um, one of the issues with that, though, is if, if something's not going through your will, it doesn't make provisions for who may have uh, fronted the money for funeral expenses or other things to do with property, you know, keeping things going. So you're not pooling the money in any way. Now, you were saying something about the one surviving child. That is one instance where you can kind of get away with it with an estate plan as if it's two people, it's the second person to die, they have joint accounts, and they have one child because all of those things are going in one direction. But as soon as you start talking about, I have minor children or I have Mm -hmm. uh, more than one child, period, it can be very difficult to properly set up beneficiary designations. And, you know, I think it's important to mention, too, with a will, from what I understand, that will needs to be filed with by the anniversary, the one-year anniversary of the person's death, correct? Yes. Otherwise, it's presumed to not exist. Then what happens? Um, you can't—at at that point, it would presume to be not existent, not be in existence, and so therefore it has an intestate succession would apply. Okay. Regardless of whether somebody finds a will two, three years down the road, it's— already would have been wrapped up by right. that point. And intestate succession, again, is means that the distribution that the legislature has decided that you would want is the sort of distribution plan you have. Yeah, and I, I think it bears, you know, emphasizing that it is attractive to people to be able to, to simply not deal with attorneys and to be able to simply change these, whether it's a POD or a TO transfer on death, just to change these designation cards for accounts and think you have done my state planning. So it we, we want you to understand that there can be circumstances where where it it may not be so bad an idea, but a lot of things have to go your way and you have to fit a specific set of circumstances. Oh, and we talked about, you know, a few of those things a few moments ago. You know, do you have more than one child? Is there is there the possibility that you're not going to want all these assets distributed immediately to your children or to the per, the person that you designate? And a lot of people prefer that if it's say two hundred thousand dollars. A lot of a lot of people say, well, gee, I I want my child to have this in a two or three installments. Uh, it's often a good idea, and it doesn't assume that your child's irresponsible. But depending if your child's in their twenties. 
you know, I would have dealt with that money different in my 20s than I do in my 40s. Yes, I know so, I would have. So, you know, you, you often want to have some control over how it's distributed and you want to, to have control over when it's distributed. You give up all that. And furthermore, if, if, you're, if the person that you intend to receive it, the beneficiary dies before you, then, then you are in a fix because now you're looking at an asset that's going to go into probate. And if you don't have a will even, then it's going to be governed by state laws and, and, and laws that probably do not reflect what you wanted to happen to that, that money. One other thing we've not talked about is um, if you try to come up with a plan like that and you have outstanding debts, whatever assets you didn't transfer that way, and there will be assets that you can't transfer with that way because they don't have documents of title or maybe they have documents of title, but they don't permit you to have a POD or TOD. And in those cases, you know, there will be there will be creditors. Uh, we all die with creditors. If nothing else, somebody to bury us. But there are always creditors. So a creditor has a right to open an estate for you. So on on you on your estate, and whatever claims are out there at the time you pass, and you don't know what those claims will be. None of us know what those claims will be. I can guess that it might be the IRS. Though. Well, uh, that's a good one. That's a reliable one. And and state authorities, too, yes. taxing authorities. So they're going to force an estate to be opened, and they're going to be looking to assemble whatever whatever assets are out there that weren't transferred. And, and they're going to – that's an expense that's going to be paid for out of your estate, and it's going to produce a lot of conflict with those people who think that they have that stuff and they own it. But they don't have any authority, anything to indicate they own it. Even a POD, if something is payable on death, if an account is transferred to a beneficiary, and that is money that was owned by the decedent prior to their passing, and there is outstanding tax debt, specifically tax debt because the taxes come before any other creditors, um, the IRS can claw that money back into the estate. So if you are receiving something under a POD, and no one's really buttoning things up neatly paperwork-wise afterwards, uh, I would caution you on spending that money too quickly because there is a possibility that you are not the only person who's entitled. So the IRS could come after that person. And Uh, and not necessarily the person as though they did something wrong. Right. But but it's still a very terrible letter to get when you think that you own something or you may have already gone and and bought that second, you know, vacation home for the family and thought, oh, wouldn't this person have loved what I did with this money? And then all Mm -hmm. of a sudden you're liable for a certain amount of outstanding debt. Yeah, and it it's not necessarily a state tax debt. Incidentally, no. some people, you know, when they when they hear this discussion, the word taxes come up in the context of estate planning. Many people assume that because we have this high exemption, which on a state tax now, if you're a couple, can be just north of twenty two million. That's going to come down when that expires. I don't think it expires yes. till twenty six. Yes, twenty six. Twenty six. So it, it's true that that maybe unless you're really rich, you might not. Be have IRS agents knocking on your door regarding that. But it's more often than not, when we see the IRS coming after things, it relates to either taxes that were already owed at the time you died that hadn't been filed, or that maybe it was on income that you didn't know that you owed taxes on. 
Um, maybe you hadn't filed things. It was taxed on the most recent return. The most recent return um, or, or, and I mean, they're behind right now. So we are having things pop up for, that were filed a couple of years ago uh, during COVID and audits that are happening sure, um, sure. For, for filed returns a couple of years before the person passed away. But also the very year that you passed, unless you're passing away on, you know, New Year's Day, um, there is probably going to be income for that year that you were living up until the time that you passed, and that return needs to be filed. Yeah, so any taxing authority, and I suspect state authority, I'm sure state authority has mm-hmm. this since they write the laws regarding probate. So so whether it's federal, any tax is federal, any tax is state, if you have a plan in which you're simply trying to rely on TODs or PODs, you need to know, and you raised a very good point, that they can grab it and and so money that you might have spent a year ago, suddenly you're finding out that, you know, there was taxes owed on a death that occurred of, of a loved one, for example, that you thought was clear and you spent the money already. Mm-hmm. So are you still responsible then? Well, they have a claim to the money, yeah. Uh, so if you spend it, then... Uh-oh. You still receive That's scary. It. So, I mean, we've reached the pinnacle of what can go wrong here because we started talking about taxes and the IRS. Yeah. But, um, yeah. But nobody really wants to deal with that. And again, it's preventable. So. Yeah. And so, so this item kind of falls under the heading of people trying to do um, estate planning with simply changing titles on documents. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, just a little bit of... Um, wire and tape and things like that. And so people come in and they say, this is what I've budgeted. You know, this is what you can prepare. And we are absolutely willing to prepare powers of attorney only, try to ease people into, you know, what they're comfortable with and what they need, and then possibly just to prepare well. So I've said this before, we don't say that we prepare wills and then don't prepare wills. Wills are still very, very valuable, um, even though they do handle assets that are in probate because they have other provisions in the will that allow for that probate process to go more smoothly. You don't have to get a ton of affidavits about things. Um, You don't have as much of a waiting period because you can admit this original document to the court, have it approved. And in that document, it allows the person that you've appointed Hopefully you had more than one on that list, but it allows that person that you've appointed to serve without having to put up a bond, um, which is something that is an expense directly to the person that you've appointed. They may be able to receive reimbursement from it later, but it allows them to serve as an insurance policy to make sure that they're doing the right thing. If you trust that person and you've appointed them, the court will allow them to serve without a bond provided that it's in your will. And a will is more vulnerable to legal challenges than a trust, correct? I I would say that both of them have the same requirements as far as your capacity, as far as your intent. They're both just as serious as far as the disposition of property. And both of them have, uh, you know, your original signature and they're signed in front of a notary. A, a will does require, in order to be self-proving, requires two witnesses that have attested that you mm-hmm. um, do appear to not be under any constraint or undue influence, which is really fancy speak for nobody's putting your hand to the paper. Right. Um, nobody told you what to put in your will. You've decided this all of your own, own accord and you're healthy and doing well enough to make that decision and to understand what you're signing. But I know we've talked before that with a trust, you can have a no contest clause. Can you do the same with a will? 
Um, you can. Uh, you can say that if anybody contests the contents of your will, that they would be disinherited from okay. that. But that isn't quite as um, quite as important in the case of a pour over will, uh, which is the will that says that everything goes to your trust. Yeah, I would, and and again, you know, different lawyers, you know, express this point differently. Um, but I, I mean, I would argue that it definitely is safer or less likely to be challenged, all things being equal, between a trust and a will. Everything that you said obviously is is correct, meaning, you know, the rules, if you read the text, you know, the, the rules are the same. If But I, I guess then it's when you step off that page and kind of the real-world situation that sets up litigation mm-hmm. for wills, right? So, and you know where I'm going. I but do. But I think that, the fact that somebody is dead now and then there's this piece of paper that says that they want stuff to go to various people, you know, it's always been greeted with great, great caution, you know, a thousand years of caution, almost literally a thousand years that the history of wills and estates and ways in which you assure that this person who's gone, that what's happening really is what they wanted. So you have this these great rituals and ceremonies associated with the signing of a will. And in some states, the witnesses, two or three witnesses, will state out loud. They must state out loud in those states. Yes, I, have, I see that you're signing your will. Or you state audibly to them. And all three, and they have to be in the room at the same time. You wouldn't believe all the litigation that's occurred about wills. A lot of it has related to the ritual of execution, execution being the signing of it. Mm-hmm. So trusts are a little different because trusts are something that you created during your You don't have those rules of execution in the same way. But also it's something that we've lived with, hopefully. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's something that somebody created maybe 10 years before their death and maybe 20. But the point is they lived with it. So it was something that not only they did, it wasn't as if they were they were led into a dark room and told to sign this piece of paper <laughs> and they didn't know what it was. This is something that they they actually um, lived out, the part that related to while they're alive. You, know, you mean and, like adding assets to it along yeah, the way? exactly. And, okay. Yeah, yeah. They, they've participated in a lot of actions to show that they know that they have a trust. And, and what's in it, especially if there's been an amendment or a restatement of that trust over time, then it shows that not only did they know it was originally in it, they decided to make some changes. And if they'd wanted to make additional changes, they probably would have made them at the time that they first amended that trust. So it holds up to a lot of scrutiny right. because of that. Yeah, so let me... Practically. I'm I'm going to put your question to her differently. So would you then agree if asked that you think that there's been far a far less likelihood, put it that way, a far lower likelihood that somebody with a trust versus a will, all other things being equal, would, would have litigation? I mean, is that what historically you see less litigation with wills? Versus I, trust. I would see as far as a contest. Or more with wills, I'm sorry. More with wills. There would be more of a contest that the document itself is valid. With trusts, you have more uh, of an issue of that fiduciary litigation. You'll yeah. see that's a whole area of law that sometimes people will specialize in. And we've talked about our un, you know, our, our trustees and, and can they be trusted and did you appoint the right person and are they doing a good job? Um, so we've already talked about that in, in a 
you know, for quite some time. But as far as the validity of the document and saying, can we rely on this document for purposes of following it for administration, you're absolutely right. And I hope that that didn't go above anybody's heads. Um, and, and so when you do have a trust, you know, when you have litigation, it, it's about often the the fiduciary, meaning the person that's charge. running it. So, you know, they can argue over, did this person do their job fairly? And maybe the next generation will think, you know, I want to replace the fiduciary. That's different. I, I think that I'm betting that our viewers and, you know, are feel far more comfortable with that. They don't want that to happen. Right. But if they have to choose to deal with litigation or disagreement, that at least is not about the fundamentals of the plan. Mm-hmm. So you're agreeing then that in terms of being challenging the document that would change the distribution that you had in mind entirely, that generally doesn't happen with a trust. I agree. And one of the things about any type of litigation is it's always easier to have a witness or to have a person that you're trying to go after who is still alive and and able to answer to the questions that you have or the accusations that you have. Um, When you have a will, if there's any type of litigation involved in that, then you're going backwards and trying to piece together something regarding someone that has already passed away. And that's always challenging. No matter how good you are of an attorney, you have to piece together quite a bit of uh, facts to show that this person either never signed that will or they didn't know what they were signing at the time for whatever reason, or they knew what they were signing, but somebody was kind of holding their hand to And it. I'm sure this can be a very long, drawn-out process. Oh, years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's probate. And this can also happen about beneficiary designations. Somebody is your person who drives you to the bank and then has you put their name on all of their accounts as the as the payable on death beneficiary. You know, just as many problems can happen there. Oh, very we don't, good point. We don't want to scare people off of getting wills and say, well, if there's all this litigation involved, I might as well not have one. But um, it's, a will is still better than just a beneficiary designation because at least it lays out very clearly what's going to happen to that money. Right. Um, but, but either way, you're going to be looking at something with a POD or with a will that looks at what was the, what were the circumstances surrounding this assignment of my my assets. And and we still would say, um, not surprising to those of you who've watched this show some time, you still would say that the go to solution is to have a trust. It uh, is, and and which is backed up as kind of a pour over will. And that, that that ultimately is better than the beneficiary designations or simply relying on a will. And we've talked about the reasons why trusts are, are so valuable because you have a plan A, a plan B, a plan C. In that instance, your plan A is your trust and the provisions in it. Your plan B is your pour over will in case you forgot to put something in your trust. And plan C and D and E, those all have to do with where is this money going to? Is the person on benefits? Is the person disabled at the time? Are they a minor? And your trust, you just get to actually have so many specific preferences and and careful thought, careful thought about how you would want things to go if things don't go according to your plan A. And I, I, you know, have very rarely had things go according to my plan A, and I'm a pretty good planner. So 
we look at this in a very pragmatic way, but it can be really assuring, reassuring to people to have that much of a voice in planning for things to not go mm-hmm. quite as planned. And, and, you know, we could do an entire show on the many cool things about a trust. Um, and we've done many cool shows on it. Yeah, we have. And, <laughs> cool. and, you know, I'm a true believer. I I have trust for my family. I'm sure you do as well. And Jill, I mean, it, there's so many cool things you can do, and, and we won't go down that road now. I did want to add, though, something on that associated with what you mentioned. And, and that's that, you know, a lot of people just don't think of the, the things that can come along where, for example, you have a loved one who has develops a disability. It could be your surviving spouse. It could be um, a child and so a grandchild. And, and guess what? As long as that money is automatically dispensed, then they don't qualify for wonderful government programs that would allow them, you know, to get, you know, high quality service and, and for it to be funded. Um, these are all things that we pay taxes for. But if you have a trust in place, though, that says that in the event that somebody becomes disabled or meets certain other criteria, that that faucet of money that would otherwise be given to them or paid out is cut off so that then they qualify for that. And so rather than than use money that, that could otherwise be helping your other children in that situation or, you know, your surviving spouse in some other way, then then this allows you to be able to respond to changes like that. Absolutely. And there are provisions that we put into our trust documents that allow for the creation of a special needs trust, which we could do a whole show on, ABLE Mm -hmm. accounts, which allow that person to continue working a little bit but still receive some benefit and still not kick them off of benefits that they may have spent a year putting the paperwork together to get on. And even a temporary suspension of those benefits is going to really severely impact them and their health care, which is the last thing that you want for one of your beneficiaries as you're trying to do something nice and making a provision for them. So Mm -hmm. um, now, I mean, the last thing, though, about this I want to make sure that we we don't get too far away from is that adding um, a child on as a POD or a payable on death versus adding them on to your account. You and I talked about that a when little they're, bit. When you're alive. Yes. Oh, as a yeah. Joint, what could go wrong there? As a joint owner. Um, Where do you start? I don't know. <laughs> I have so many examples, and none of them are good. Um, so— there's a lot of, of misconception about adding someone onto your account. And as a very quick sidebar to this, adding someone onto your account as a power of attorney, as a POA, POA. onto your account, you've got, you know, just another thing to wrench to throw in there. A power of attorney always ceases to be active upon your death. So if you add a child onto your account, just to note that the bank has reviewed your power of attorney so that they can pay your bills and things like that. It does not mean that the funds will go to your child upon your passing. So you still need to put a beneficiary designation on that account. And I guess they need to be sure it's a durable power of attorney. Correct, that that it's presently active. And they won't be added onto the title of the account in any way if it's not a presently, current powers power of attorney. Um, But aside from that, a lot of people say, I 
oh, I don't need to do even the POD to the trust when they have a trust in place. They're like, oh, gosh, I don't need to do that. Let's not add the checking account into the trust because I don't need to do that. I have added my kid on. And that way they'll be able to write checks out of it after I've passed. And that will make things go so much smoother. And then when they're done paying bills and things like that, they're going to distribute it to the rest of their siblings and my other beneficiaries Mm -hmm. because I trust them and they're going to do a great job. Now, we can kind of glaze over the part about how much you trust your kid to do the right thing because that can happen or that cannot happen. And oftentimes, your child will try to do the right thing, but you've created a circumstance where now you have this entire trust administration or this probate, and there is no beneficiary, or there is a beneficiary designation, but it never gets to where your beneficiary designation is because when you create an account that has a third person or a second person, whether it's a couple with their kid or or one person, a surviving spouse or a single person with their kid, when you pass away, that person is the joint owner of the account. The part that people also don't think about is that that person is a 100% owner. You're a 100% owner and they're a 100% owner of that account. So you have opened yourself up to if the co-owner of your account gets sued for any reason, there's a judgment against them. There is an unpaid debt that they're disputing in some way. Or they go through a divorce. Divorce, yes. That asset is owned by them. And you can try to do some forensics and show where the money went to and things like that. But oftentimes, if you're looking at a valuation of assets, nobody cares. Because you're just talking about looking at what are the assets that they have access to. And according to the bank and that titling on the account, they have 100% access to that account. So if you're holding, you know, $5,000 in that account, you may not think it's such a big deal. Um, And that's arguable whether or not it is. But when you start talking about accounts that have six, you know, figures in them, that's that's a lot of money, and it was something that you intended to go according to the terms of your trust. If you divide the amount that's left in your account upon your mm-hmm. passing among the beneficiaries, just assuming that your child does exactly what you wanted them to do and they distribute that money, if they are distributing over the annual gift tax exclusion, you have now saddled that person with the responsibility to file gift tax returns for anything that they gave to any of your beneficiaries because according to the IRS, that wasn't your money anymore. It was theirs and they're gifting it as opposed to it being an inheritance. So all kinds of things that you didn't mean to have happen and you may not listen to your attorney and you may go right back home and do exactly what you'd planned on doing because you just can't get over the fact that you want to have that child involved. But you should at least do it with eyes open, knowing what the potential risks are. You know, we hate to think about this, but we do know what happens. I mean, you want to trust that child that you put on your bank account as the joint owner. But we know what happens. That child could clean out your bank account, and there's nothing you can do about it's, it. I mean, there are just so many it, reasons. It happens. Uh, they may plan on putting it back. Well, They may have a problem, yeah. and they may have the best of intentions that, that it's going to be out of there and back in before you even notice no, it's, it. it's gone. But it, it can be a problem. Things happen. Right. And— these reasons are just huge, and and there are more. I mean, we didn't mention, for example, I guess, 
tax liability in terms of, apart from gift tax, mm-hmm. just income. If you add somebody's name to a securities account and there's income that year, whose income is it? Well, the law's position is you all are joint owners. So I assume the IRS will probably assume 50-50 liability for that income. Uh, But, I mean, that's a significant tax effect because whoever you named is going to be in a different tax bracket, whether it's better or worse. The point is, it's not what you really intended. You intended for this person to have access. You didn't, uh, in the event that you could not get to it, you didn't intend for a present transfer of a 50% much less 100% interest in, in those assets. So it, it, there, this is such a bad idea. I, we can't <laughs> it's emphasize really bad. <laughs> By the time you think about the risk of Don't divorce and, 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 and bankruptcies and creditors and IRS, and I mean, it's just an awful idea. And we, I, I, I will resist going down the full list, but I should also mention that this is really fertile ground for lawsuits later when you pass as to what you intended, uh, because some would say that it, you know, you were deluded into doing this, uh, and that somebody had undue influence, and so people will who would otherwise have a claim to those assets will say that that, it, like you talked about, that could happen in other contexts too. Uh, so, don't consider putting people's names on accounts as co-owners. And it's different, as we talked about, with the transfer on death. And we don't think that's the best idea, except in the context involving a trust, where you it's part of a plan you know, to get your assets in your trust. Um, that's okay. But the worst possible thing you can do, I think, is to put people on as co-owners. And in other words, just list their name, because that's putting them on as a co-owner. Co-owner, right. Joint bank account. Yeah, versus a beneficiary clause. Uh, so we got through this item. Do we have another item that we're going to cover today? So I think we have a a very short item, and that is kind of tying into what we just talked about. Don't take it personally when your estate planning attorney asks you questions that kind of insinuate that your kid may not be or your power of attorney or anybody that you've appointed or anybody that you've put on your account may not have the best of intentions or have the best fortitude for handling this task. Because we will acknowledge that we have not met these people, that we cannot see into the future. We can see into the future even probably less than you can because you know these these individuals, but that it's our job to talk about the worst case scenario, plan for it, and come up with a solution that you can actually live with. So we respect your intelligence as clients. We respect what you have built, um, the assets that you've built, the family that you've built, and what you're trying to protect, uh, but that we really want to make sure that we're protecting you and what you would want to have happen both now and and after you pass so away. So you're not insulting them or no. their children. You're looking out for their best interests. Absolutely. Right. And you can imagine, uh, tying in with our point last week, how uh, difficult it is to have this conversation without somebody being offended if the child is sitting there in the room. Is sitting in the room. Or the significant other whom you're not married to is sitting, is in, sitting the in the room. sitting in the room. So, um, awkward. So, yeah, another so. reason that, uh, listen to last week's show. So often you'll have people who will have a list of candidates and you'll walk through and talk through those with that mm-hmm. person. 
Absolutely. What do they do for a living? How close do they live? How well do they get along with the other people in your family? It's interesting that in, um, when we're talking about being honest with your attorney, which we discussed in depth last week, um, we'll get to the end of the meeting and they'll kind of circle back and they're like, you know, this this person, Ken, that we were talking about <laughs> before, you know, they're really good at this, but they may not be as good at this. Or I think once we've talked about all of these specific things, this is going to make their head explode. And so sometimes we'll go back mm-hmm. to the drawing board. But we don't have a dog in this fight. We don't, other than to make sure we've done a good job in taking care of what you would want to have happen. So we're not anti-Ken. We're not pro-Ken. We just want to make sure we're we're pro-client. Um, we are taking on a huge responsibility of being an attorney and a professional that is guiding them through the process. And so as we're leading them through thinking of things that they may not have thought about before, it can get a little uncomfortable, but it's not something that we're not taking personally. And hopefully the attorney that you have is having enough respect and tact to handle these difficult conversations in a way that you're comfortable sharing with them. Very true. And and you would say statistically, if you have a couple in which both are living, probably most, maybe 90% would have their surviving spouse as uh, the first trustee in yes. the event of their death or disability. Particularly if it's joint, but, you know, as their power of attorney and then as the remaining uh, grantor and trustee. So, yes. If you have separate trusts, though, that doesn't always have to be the case. Yeah. And And it can be very reassuring to children in a blended family if the person that you put as your successor is not the surviving spouse. So there are good reasons either way. And if you're both sitting in, you know, my office and and I'm representing both of you and you're doing separate trust, that's not necessarily a conflict. That's trying to avoid conflict later for your children. Right. Yeah. And and remember, this person may be in charge while you're alive. I mean, the whole idea of a trust is it's not just cool and and you can do some great things when you pass away. You can also do some great things with a trust while you're alive. And, and that means that while you're managing your own affairs, of course, as long as things are going on as usual, but in the event that you have a stroke or something, then you immediately, no court involved or anything, have someone who's following a set of rules that you've created in the trust versus, say, a durable power of attorney, which is a great thing, but but it doesn't give you the sort of structure that, that a trust does. So if we talk then, just real briefly, some of the criteria that you think are really important in the selection of this people, you've, you've just indicated relationship with other beneficiaries is a big deal. It is. It can be, it doesn't have to be somebody that everyone is talking to every day is their best buddy, but it does have to be someone who respects the other people in the family, who is going to respect their intelligence, who's going to have the time to set aside to um, really pay attention and work on this properly. Maybe somebody who at least has a basic understanding of numbers. And we talked about this once before, just somebody who knows when to throw in the towel, um, either as to being trustee or knows when they need help in their duties as trustee. So if you have somebody who is a know-it-all or at least has the perception from the other people in the family as being a know-it-all, that is ultimately going to be 
immediately combative in everyone's eyes. They they won't feel comfortable asking questions. Um, they won't always take what the person says at face value. So that um, that ability to be kind of a people person and a paperwork person is just your A plus uh, trustee or or power of attorney there. And it's okay for it to be somebody outside the family that you you know and trust. My wife and I have we have successor trustees for our trusts, and and there are professionals that I know in the legal and financial community that we think are well suited. And another factor that we had to consider that you mentioned is location. Some people assume that that anything can be done anywhere, but doing things remotely is is particularly you know a a hot topic today. Sometimes it's it's helpful to be on the job, but I guess I do feel like there's probably more flexibility on this discussion today than than I would have felt at least six years ago. Absolutely. And we're more concerned about the person being communicative. If they are, um, if you're in Missouri and they're in Washington State, if they know how to communicate effectively, they'll be able to handle the entire administration process in a very good way. but um, And if you have to choose between somebody that you know is going to do a good job that doesn't live here and somebody who might do a mediocre job who does live here, I would go with the person who lives further away. But that is to say, if they are not a good communicator, then the beneficiaries are going to feel like somebody who's way out of the state that they can't sit down and have a conversation with is not sharing adequate information with them about what their position is. And that can be uh, catastrophic. And the role, I guess, if if this same person is going to occupy a role of caregiver, for example, appointment as a guardian, then it becomes more important to be local. Would you say? Yes, absolutely. So uh, there are various factors, but I guess this makes the list because too often people have too short a list and maybe the wrong people on it. And it and remember, when that happens, it doesn't mean that your trust falls apart. Uh, the law says somewhere, an old saying from a judge years ago, is a trust won't fail for lack of a trustee because you know, the court can always appoint one. Mm-hmm. But it's not what you want. I mean, that's the reason you did a trust is stay out of court, one of the reasons. And yet you're going to end up in court if there's some failure to name a successor. Any other comments on this? I don't think so. But, I mean, it's something that applies to everyone who has a trust. I'm the second oldest of 10 children, and I obviously know what I'm talking about with respect to trusts. But I am not so delusional that I think that when my youngest brother passes away that I'm still going to be alive to be the trustee. (laughs) So you need to make sure that you are having that plan A, B, and C. You know, Try to have three names on there um, that will definitely outlive you. Yeah, three names in succession. You know, we've talked before about having multiple names simultaneously. No. That, <laughs> no. You know, it's it's asking for disagreement and gridlock often. But we say in our language that we use is one at a time and in the order that we've named them. So that's how it will appear in your trust. It's very clear. And you have a little column with all of your names on it. And the more names you have on there, the better you should feel about not having to come back into my office because your one person passed away and read you your document. So we really have, you know, it's an altruistic thing for us to guide people in this fashion because we are prohibited 
prohibiting them from having to uh, pay us more to amend those documents as quickly because, uh, you know, someone passes away shortly after the documents are executed. We're trying to provide them with documents that will live as long as the current legislation and their current family situation allows for. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, it, that's the reason you spend a little more money for a trust than you will simply a will is because for the scenarios we just described for anybody who has significant assets, you're going to spend so much more with all the safeguards in place. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so at, at the end of the day, trusts are an incredible bargain for the vast majority of people. With that, I think we will pick up our list one more time. We're going to do three episodes on this topic. And the, this is the topic of what can go wrong whenever you do estate planning. And we're, we want to talk about some of the most notorious things that can and often do go wrong. So with that, we will wrap up. Uh, And remember our sponsors, Tucker Allen. If you want to make an appointment with Tucker Allen, you can go to Tucker Allen's website and you can make an appointment there, right? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Mr. Cordell. Yes. Till next time, this has been another episode of Life's Third Act. Take care. You've been listening to Life's Third Act, a podcast for thriving in retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, your estate and elder law advisors. Each week, we discuss topics and answer questions to help you better plan for your future. For more information, visit TuckerAllen.com. Subscribe and listen again next week for another edition of Life's Third Act. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely on advertisements.